This is the Wealthy Contractor Podcast, brought to you by G4 Marketing. Interviews with today's top home improvement entrepreneurs about marketing, sales, money, mindset, and lifestyle. Now, here's your host, Brian Kaskavalsian. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of the Wealthy Contractor Podcast. This is Brian Kaskavalsian with G4 Marketing Group. And today, I have got another amazing guest. Mark Curry from Your Remodeling Guys is also another legend of the home improvement business. We've had one or two other ones on, depends on when you're listening to this, but Mark is Mark is a bona fide legend of the home improvement industry. And you'll find out why as, as we start talking. But before I welcome Mark in, I just want to remind you that you can still get a copy of my book, The Seven Secrets to Becoming a Wealthy Contractor. You can go to thewealthycontractor.com and you can still get a free copy of it. I'll pay for the book. I'll buy you the book. You just pay for shipping and handling. So Mark Curry, welcome. I am excited to have you here. Well, thanks for having me, Brian. Appreciate it. All right. So Mark, so Mark, if you've not seen Mark, he's, he's, you know, I bring on a lot of guys that, you know, you find them on the lists and you'll see them on the, you know, a lot in the events and they want to get up on stage and they want to talk. Well, Mark has been on the stages and done all of that, but he's a very kind of behind the scenes guy. And so you know, doesn't grab the spotlight like some other people do. And so I think, Mark, let's start off with, you know, the just give us the two-minute version of your story, and then we'll kind of jump into it with some questions. Yeah, so, you know, we all have our own story in terms of how we got into this crazy industry. Mine is somewhat unique in that I come from humble beginnings, a little southeast Baltimore suburb called Dundalk, tough blue collar area, economically depressed, had some low academic standards, but wouldn't change it for anything. I, I look back on it with immense pride, learned all my street smarts and how to sell my, my way out of trouble, you might say. You know, after high school, I was fortunate enough to get connected with some of the right people and was influenced to go to college. I graduated from Maryland, University of Maryland in the early 1980s, in aerospace engineering. I was an engineer through that decade of the 1980s, at which time I started dating a girl whose father was the owner of a home improvement company, a window company. And I was absolutely amazed as to, after having met with her parents, that they lived in this house that was just, it was an estate, 14-acre estate with a swimming pool and a tennis court. And I thought I could, be, I could spend the next 30 years working for NASA and not making or amassing this type of wealth. After about a year of dating this girl, I uh, made that decision to switch careers, go from engineering to, to being a window salesman. I remember having my parents on the phone with me and my mother was crying and asking my father to talk some sense into me. But I followed my instincts and learned the business that we're in here today direct in home selling and never looked over my shoulder to ever go back to, to engineering. So I uh, worked in my father-in-law's business all through the 1990s. He eventually retired. I purchased that business with some business partners 
I later then sold that company in 2007 and started the uh, business that I have here today. And historically, when you look back on the past 50 years, geez, 2007 had to be probably the worst year economically to, to start a new business. All the lending institutions were going bankrupt and the housing bubble burst. And somehow, some way, you know, we put our head down and it was tough times, but we managed our way through that four-year tough time. And then, uh, and I was also challenged with uh, non-competes in terms of selling my previous business. So all the conventional products of windows, roofing, siding, baths, I was forbidden from. So, you know, we were like Madonna back in the 1980s. We were trying to reinvent ourselves with different products. And we found our, our way through all that by becoming a kitchen refacing company. And that's what we are today. We are exclusively a kitchen refacing company. We do a lot of work with Home Depot in terms of sales and installations. And we conduct that business from Pennsylvania all the way up through uh, the state of Maine. So that gives you a good top yeah. level background hey, of mine. Hey, Mark, give us, an, give us an idea about how many jobs will you complete? Well, we're at the end of 2019. So do you mind sharing about how many jobs you'll complete this year? Just shy of a thousand. Yeah, we're thousand. just uh, around 900. So, yeah. And how many salespeople do you have? We have 18 salespeople currently. Now, to everybody listening, okay, so I always like to say this, that's, you know, that's where Mark is today. But in 2007, which was really not that long ago, he basically had to completely start over, had a non-compete in place, which makes life a little bit more challenging. And in, you know, in a relatively short period of time, it's really built up an amazing, amazing business. It's called Your Remodeling Guys. I don't know if we mentioned the name of the company or not at the beginning, but it's called Your Remodeling Guys. And so, so there's a lot here to kind of unpack with you, Mark. And I know that you're really a numbers guy. You understand the math of this business. And I, I wonder, can you talk a little bit about that, especially at the beginning? How did you use that kind of the knowledge of the of the understanding of the math and how the numbers work in this building or in this business in order for you to to grow the business the way that you have? You know, a lot of people will say, why would you give up career in engineering to be in a business like this? And I always tell them I wish it was more noble of a reason, but I'm afraid it's really just the money that attracted me this type of business. But the engineering background has certainly not gone to waste. Having that strong math background and that, that basis of analytical, analytical thinking allowed me to be a strong advocate for systems and processes. And also, you know, we have a saying here in our company, then God we trust, but all others bring quantitative data. So if we can't measure it, we won't do it. And don't get me wrong. I mean, any entrepreneur that's listening to this knows that, you know, we're in the business of gambling. It's not for the faint of heart. You're rolling the dice, you know, every day in terms of lead generation and hoping to get a good cost-effective lead out on the street. But so the key is to mitigate some of that risk by having all the metrics in place, key performance indicators, the right CRM system. So invariably, we're all going to spend some money on a particular marketing campaign and not get a good return on our investment. But 
key is not to do that indefinitely for, for 12 months or a year and a half and then find out that it's not working. So, but then the other part of the equation is that you can't be paralyzed either. You can't just sit back and hope things are going to come to you. You got to go out there, roll the dice, assume some risk and give things enough time to tweak it, dial it in to make it work. But the underlying decision maker is, is the numbers. The numbers do not lie. So whatever your, your metrics are, you know, live and die by them. What are, what are the, what are the important numbers for, the listener. What what are the things that in this business, because look, you as great a business, and I hope this isn't going to come out wrong, but as great a business as you have, there are others just like yours in terms of, you know, what you do with numbers and, you know, they may not be as efficient as you, they may not be as profitable as as you, but this business is very formulaic, right? X number of Yeah, X number of leads come in, X number convert to appointment, X number demo, sell, uh, job average, lead cost. What are the important numbers and how do you how do you look at them? Yeah, so that, you know, obviously that's a that's a deep top, but not to be micro to say more macro. I would start by telling the list, telling the listeners that whether it's a $5 million company you run, $10 million, $20 million, or $120 million. You know, no matter how big your company is, let it be engineered and designed for your revenue where you're at today to make a profit. Work that math backwards. Brian even talks about that in his books of the seven secrets of becoming a wealthy contractor. So reverse engineer the business starting from where you want to be and work it backwards. And you can't really do that without working the math. So... You know, say for instance, you're a $20 million company. You're going to be issuing somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, 10,000 leads a year, depending on what your net sale per lead issue is, right? So in this example, say it's $2,000, which is a conservative number. But if your net sale per lead issue, or also called a return on your investment, your investment is the lead. So for every lead you issue, it boils down to $2,000. Well, if you issue 10,000 leads a year, you're a $20 million company. You want to grow that to be a $40 million company? You got to double that lead production, going from 10,000 leads to 20,000 leads. Hey, so, Mark. Hey, Mark. That, sorry, real quick. Just, um, yes. just for clarification, can you please tell the listeners what you mean by an issued lead? Yeah. So an issued lead is an appointment that touches the hands figuratively speaking, of a salesman. It's not a lead that's set in the store or sitting in a database. It's something that goes out the door into the hands of the salesperson, whether physically or electronically, however you transmit that appointment. doesn't matter whether it's a demo, a no demo, a not home. The salesperson got the lead but decided not to go to it for whatever reason. Once it goes out your door, it's been issued. Okay. And- right, so that is... Go ahead. I'm sorry. So that that's the the one factor you're looking at in terms of, of an issued lead. And then what is your return on that investment? And people have different acronyms that they would use. Uh, for instance, a NSLI would be what is your net sale for every lead that you have, you know, you issue. So every time a salesman turns the keys of the ignition onto his car, okay, what what kind of revenue does that turn into? You know, it could be $3,000, $4,000. It's going to vary from one salesperson to the next, but what is your company average? And say, for instance, it's $4,000, all right? Well, now you look at your 
your lead costs, okay? And what I mean by your lead costs is an acronym that we use called a CPIL, which is a cost per issued lead. CPIL, what is the cost per issued lead? So if your issued lead fully burdened with everything, so for your, your media costs or if it's face-to-face marketing, what is that, that hourly rate plus your conversions, everything fully loaded. If that lead that you issue is costing you $400 and your NSLI, the return on that investment is 4,000, you have a 10% lead cost. If your NSLI is $4,000, that's your sales efficiency factor. And that lead is costing you $800. Well, then your your lead cost, your marketing expense on your P&L, your operating statement each month, is going to be 20%. $800 divided by $4,000, you're going to be at 20%. So that's what's interesting. It doesn't matter whether you're a $1 million company or $100 million. That math and all of our business can all be funneled down and reduced to one analytic, to one lead. What If you issue only one lead a year, what is your return on the investment, your NSLI? And that relationship, one divided by the other, is your marketing cost that's going to be reflected on your P&L. So that's one key factor or parameter that, that we always look at. Hey, and Mark, um, and Mark let, yes. let me make one clarification here for the listener. So NSLI, critical number, a simple way for you to get the NSLI number is you take a number of issued leads. Let's, to make the math easily, easy, let's make it 10. So remember, Mark said this is when you hand the lead to the salesperson. It's now on them to go run that lead. For every 10 of those, how much money total comes back? Let's say using, again, Mark's example, an NSLI of $4,000 means that of those 10 leads, $40,000 in revenue came back. So when you divide the 10 into the 40,000, that's where you get the number that he's talking about. It's a critical number because that means that for every lead that Mark gives one of the salespersons, we're not saying that's his number. We're just saying that's that's a critical number in the business and you have to figure it out. Every lead that goes out the door, $4,000 comes back in. And then if you have a cost of $400 to set it, 10% lead cost, $800 to set it, 20% lead cost. So I just, I, I just wanted to, some people get hung up on that NSLI number, Mark. So I just wanted, to, hopefully I made it, I clarified it and I didn't make it more confusing. Yeah, and let me you know, bolster that just a little bit more. Use the example of 10 leads, same type of math. You know, a lot of times you'll look at in a, in a period of say four weeks, a month, somebody ran 30 leads, okay, somewhere around seven, eight appointments a week, but in a month or a period, they're, they're running 30 leads. And if they net entered net business, good business of $60,000 on the books, then 60,000 divided by 30 leads for that month would be 2,000. Similar math to, to what you did. So, yeah, their return on the investment, the business owner gave you 30 leads. What did you give them in return? $60,000. That means $2,000 for every lead that you gave them. So it's easy enough to look at an NSLI or calculate it that way. But this is for just some bonus point. Most companies don't look at it the way I'm about to tell you, but here's another way of calculating it. It is the multiplication or what they say in math terms of the product of three things in your business, three metrics. And seldom is NSLI ever described this way, but 
mathematically it's sound. This is the way it works out. It's the multiplication of your average sale times your gross closing times what you retain after cancellations and turndowns from the lenders. So I'll say it again. It's, it's your average sale times your gross closing times your retention. So if your average sale is $10,000, you don't even have to figure out how many leads you're running, just one lead, right? Your average sale is 10,000. Let's say your closing percentage is 40% gross closing. What's 40% of 10,000? $4,000. And if your retention is 70%, we'll say, 70% of 4,000 is $2,800. So your NSLI is 2,800. So all you have to do is multiply an average sale times gross closing times the retention. So that's how we also look at a sales rep. A lot of companies will say, well, I got a guy who's a 40% closer. Well, that doesn't mean a whole lot. Sounds good on the surface, but if the, if the average sale is only $3,000, well, you know, 40% of 3,000, you're only at a $1,200 number. And then you retain, say, nine, say 80% of that. And your NSLI is $960. You're, you're under $1,000. So I, we don't look at, you know, the closing percentage in a vacuum. You have to look at what that retention is for that salesperson as well as what is the average sale. You know, some salespeople that are selling windows, we see this all the time with window companies. And as a sales rep will brag about having a 40% closing. But if he's only selling partial jobs at three, four windows at a time, he has a very low average sale. And if he has a high cancellation rate, then that's going to hurt him all the much more. So you can't look at any one of these sales metrics or performance parameters in a vacuum. You have to look at the culmination of all three of those things multiplied together. Retention, closing, and average sale. And that will equate to the NSLI. A little more complicated to do it that way than just taking the total amount of business and divide it by the number of leads. But if you really want to drill down and, and really take a deep dive on, on each individual salesperson, that's the DNA that makes up every rep. So what, what else? What else is important? What are the other numbers you know, that you're looking at? Yeah, well, the other one in terms of driving profitability, right? We've talked so far about a cost per issued lead and then the NSLI. Just to close out on that one, some people say, well, how much is your leads, you know, cost you? What is your cost per issue lead? You know, some companies are saying, well, it's $300. Other companies might be $800. Somebody says, well, $800, that's a lot of money to issue a lead. Well, again, you can't look at that in a vacuum. It all depends on what your sales conversion is, your NSLI. So you you can't look at an NSLI as being good or bad, independent of the cost of the lead and vice versa. So those two things go together to determine your marketing expense on your P&L. Now, the other factor that drives profit is what we call in accounting terms, your COGS. What is your cost of goods sold? What are your gross margins you know, after your labor and your material? What is the multiplier that you put on your COGS? And I don't want to get into the specifics of that in terms of where you should be. You know, the, the right number is whatever works for you. <laughs> but but you take a look at what your, your cost of goods sold is, you know, that percentage. Say, for instance, if a company has, I'm just going to keep it real simple and say a 2.0 multiplier on their cost of materials and labor, then that means their, their COGS are 50%. And if you have a 20% lead cost, you're at 70%. A 10% sales commission 
you're 80%. So you only have essentially a 20% contribution margin for your, your own net profit plus your overheads. So that would be running rather thin. You know, uh, if somebody had a multiplier of a 2.5 on all their labor material costs, that would mean that their, their cost of goods sold would be 40%. Pay 10% commission, you're up to 50%. If you're able to have a 15% marketing cost, you're 65%. Now you have about a 35% gross margin, not gross margin, but a contribution margin. Take maybe... 15, 20 points off of that for overhead, you're left with a 15% net profit. But the two key drivers I find in constructing or architecting the right P&L is always, you know, what is your COGS as a percentage of the revenue? What kind of multiplier are you putting on your labor material costs to generate your retail price sheet? And I'm not talking about before discounts. I'm talking about you know, after all the discounts and you come down to your target price of what you're selling the job for. So, and then the other key factor is, is your marketing percentage. They are, and of course the commission, but these are all direct costs for the most part, uh, but you, you have to have enough of a contribution margin there to offset the overhead to be left with whatever profit you desire to net out of your company. Let's stop here and take a quick break. Do you want a steady stream of referrals coming into your business? Do you want a system that gets your customers to come back to you to buy more of your products and services? How about more five-star reviews on the sites that matter like Google, Facebook, and Better Business Bureau? Of course you do. G4 Marketing Group has been doing all of that for home improvement companies just like yours since 2009. Want to see if we can do the same for you? Just go to www.g4marketing.com and schedule a free Wealthy Contractor Strategy Session. That's www.gfourmarketing.com. Now let's get back to this episode. So, you know, everybody that's listening, if we go back a minute or, or, or so, Mark said something really, really interesting he used the term architecting your PL. Architecting your PL. Mark, tell us what you mean by that. Well, you know, uh, again, uh, let me say a lot of people come into owning a business in our industry, usually through one of two avenues. One is came up through the production side, construction, building stuff, uh, or the other avenue seems to be you know, through sales. Now, I'm not saying that's always the case. There's always exceptions to that. But generally speaking, a lot of our contractors, business owners come up from one of those two areas. And it's not like they have a strong background necessarily in, in accounting. And I would highly advise anybody who's listening to a podcast like this, who is a business owner, is to get some basic fundamental book on accounting or, or have a mentor, somebody that can teach you some of the, the fundamentals and the basics of this because otherwise it's just a hope and a prayer. You're running your business operate like a, a wish and a prayer that you're gonna, you know, have a, a profit at some point. Um and the and the business can any business can be very misleading. You got cash in the bank, you think everything's good. You know, are you using accrual accounting or a cash basis accounting? So again, a, a topic like that is 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 pretty deep. But you can't really architect your P&L and lay out which each one of these 
areas, these departments or, or, or areas on your P&L are going to operate at, as a percentage of revenue until you really understand some what they call generally accepted accounting principles known as GAP in accounting terms. But I'll, I'll lay out to you here, if anybody wants to make notes on this, what our chart of accounts look like, how we've architected it on our P&L. Yeah, I was talking about the, uh, the, the chart of accounts that we have set up in our business. And I've, I've used this model for many years and would not think about ever changing it. And uh, so on our P&Ls, we would have we would have the labor material costs, and that would be you know, defined as, again, COGS, C-O-G-S, cost of goods sold, which would include your use tax on materials, your freight, any travel pay to the installers, as well as measuring a job, your measure tech. So anything that's directly tied to the cost of goods sold to the labor material of that job what about- would be... Hey, Mark, what about vehicles and insurance, stuff like no, that? No, no, we do not. It's not to say it's wrong to do that, but it's, it's, you're going to have your vehicles and you're going to have your insurance as an overhead independent of what you sell. Got it. So, so you're saying that, that those are going into overhead. Okay. That's correct. Okay. Yeah, so we would start on a P&L top line. Of course, you have your revenue and then your expenses actually called costs at first or what I just listed, your labor material costs. After that, on our P&L, we would have our other direct costs, which is commission. And after commission, you would have your lead procurement, the marketing costs. And we look for uh, you know, the, the COGS and your commission and your lead procurement are all direct on a direct basis. It's a percentage of revenue. It's going to be the same percentage whether you do 30 million, 20 million, 100 million. Doesn't matter. Those percentages I just laid out will always be the same function of the sale. Which is, if I could just throw this in, Mark, which is one of the reasons why, when there, because you've seen this, I'm sure. And if you go back in Mark's history, when he was a million dollar company, these numbers held true. When he was a $5 million company, these numbers held true. The reality of it is that if you don't have these fundamentals right when you're at a million dollars, probably aren't going to magically fix them when you get to five or 10. These need to be in place early. You need the financial discipline early because just selling more is not going to magically make you profitable. So I'm sorry to interrupt. I just had to throw that yeah. in there because of what you brought up. Right. So then what you're left with, Brian, is your overheads. And it's not like we take everything else and it just gets thrown into this, this big silo called overheads. We even break that down. We start with what we call our sales overhead, which would be you know, anything from sample cases to sales management to company sales trips contests, anything like that would go into a sales overhead. Sales training would be there. Next overhead is our construction overhead, which would be any you know additional tooling that might be bought. It would be vehicles, any settlements or mismeasures, additional expenses. We can all separate line items. We can monitor all that in the uh, construction overhead. And and then last would be your administrative overhead. And that would be office equipment, uh, 
uh, all your, your payroll for your administrative staff would all be in there. So you have those three overheads, just to reiterate, you know, sales overhead, construction overhead, and admin overhead. So what's left over then is your profit. And that's how we architect our P&Ls. And to your point earlier, we've been doing this for years, regardless of how small or big the company is in terms of the top line revenue. You know, these parameters can never be compromised. And then our bonus plans with all of our management, you know, is such is, is designed or engineered in such a way that it's tied to that portion of the P&L. So they will get a redacted, you know, segment of the profit and loss statement each month. Somebody's overseeing, say, the sales department with the sales overhead. My production managers, you know, their bonus on making sure that there's not too many mismeasures or settlements with customers. So their bonuses are all tied to that. They win, I win. So it's interesting when you can take all your personnel, key management in each one of these areas, and they have a bonus that's tied to that segment of the P&L, then it's, uh, it's interesting how that ownership mentality starts coming into play with your key staff, right? There's an old saying that the only people to think like owners are owners. <laughs> I've been challenging that concept by developing the right type of bonus plans and then teaching the key management to take ownership of their area. And of course, you know, I'm appealing to their greed to make good money and also to the sense of them really just wanting to win. And, uh, and that ultimately will give the business owner a degree of, you know, independence and freedom from the business, which depending on what your goal is, you may want that. I know I certainly do. Yeah. So, you know, that brings up something interesting. So when you got, when you started your remodeling guys, you you were already running a the the company you owned previously was a very good size home improvement business and you you sold that and then you basically had to start again from scratch obviously you came into it with a lot of knowledge and so my my question is when you're how do i want to say this when you're let's say you're smaller million, couple million bucks, and you really want to grow. What is the job of the owner? What is the job of the owner? Because, you know, we know that you get into this business generally one of two ways, either from, you said this earlier, generally from the install side or from the sales side. You came in through the, most of my clients come in through the sales side. But what ends up happening is that if you come in, let's say from the sales side, you end up spending all of your time selling, which doesn't allow you to really grow a company. It doesn't have you focus on building a process for selling so you can bring on people and you can kind of multiply yourself. It's almost kind of worse when you come from the install side and you're up on a roof or out installing windows. But what is it from your experience? What is the job of the owner? Yeah, so a uh, great question because maybe to resound a little bit of what you just said, you know, a lot of people start a business where they end up really just buying themselves a job. <laughs> you know, they, yeah. they invest all this money they have. And not a very good one either. Yeah, right. That's right. You know, they uh, throw all the life savings and everything into something to buy themselves a job that they're end up working 80 hours a week in minimum wage. And so, you know, I've started a business for no reason other than, you know, for investment purposes, you know, to, to accomplish some of the things that you lay out in your book, you know, something that would afford me to live the lifestyle 
that I want to live. And so from day one, my objective would be always to replace myself. You know, I didn't want to be the person who was an owner-operator. I just don't like the sounds of that. Never have. You know, I'm reminded of the guy who owns the local family pizza shop, you know, and he's barely making ends of meat. And he's working every holiday, Saturdays and Sundays and, and, and nights. And don't get me wrong, you know, I'm, I'm not shy to put the time in and work in some, some crazy hours like a wild banshee. But, you know, I, I got this you know, end in mind. The whole time I'm working my tail end off, you know, my top of mind awareness is always focused on replacing myself. So, so, you know, one is you have to be, as a business owner, have the intellectual, have the intellectual property in every one of your areas, not just on the sales side, you know, which may be your tall hat, but you need to understand production, the, the admin side, systems, processes, you need to understand the bookkeeping part. And then, for me, my objective and mission was to hire people in every one of these areas, these facets of the business, and train them, give them the skill sets, spend the time with them. If they weren't the right person, I had no misgivings about throwing them out and reloading and getting somebody that you know had the mental agility and could assimilate that information and, uh, and also would fit in with our core values as a company. And you don't do that overnight. You know, it's, it's a daunting task. But that is where your focus is yeah. as a business leader. And then once you have those pillars, if you will, in place, somebody who's a rock-solid production manager, somebody who really knows how to drive leads and on the marketing side, somebody who really is a truly good sales leader, in terms of understanding one call closing, doesn't matter what the widget is, but knows how to understand value added selling, how to recruit and attract talent. Once you have all those in place, which again, is not easy, but once they are in place, then again, you might still be a small company, whatever that means, you know, perhaps less than $10 million, but you're now set up where you're, you're making good margins, double digit profits, and you're freeing your time up. For me, it's not freeing my time up to take a vacation, you know, and be an absentee owner. But it frees my time up to now, instead of working in the business as much, now I'm working on the business, taking it to the next level in terms of growth. And what does that look like? So once you have that foundation built, then this is where you have to become that less of an operator, more of a strategic leader. And, you know, other people might have different views on this, but to really grow a business, as I touched on earlier, it's, it's tied to the marketing all right, you have to have the systems and processes in place, that foundation, so that if you double the amount of leads coming in, then everything else has to fall into place in terms of doubling your personnel, your sales force, and what have you. So this is where, you know, it's, again, it's, uh, you're gambling. It's a risk. And that's why I said earlier, it's not for the faint of heart, right? So now you're making some money. And what are you going to do with that money? You know, with me, <laughs> I was a strong believer in reinvesting it. And it's almost like the guy at the blackjack table, right? You're playing textbook blackjack. <laughs> and the dealers, you're waiting for the dealer to get a six and you got good cards. And you want to double down, right? You want to put the odds in your favor and you're, you're playing intelligently. But that dealer still can draw all the way out to a 21 and beat you, so you lose. So, I mean, that can happen at any given day with any marketing campaign that you're investing in. And that's just, that's just business. That's going to happen. You're going to win some, you're going to lose some. All right? But you need, in my humble opinion, have a plan that you're growing at a rate of 20 to 25%. 
some of these companies that have explosive growth that grow 60, 70% in a year, it's impressive on the surface. And not that I'm not impressed with it, but I'm more so curious as to how they do that. And when you look into it, it's, you know, it's not really a surprise. I mean, some people will gamble in certain marketing campaigns and they win. They win big in terms of doubling or tripling their uh, lead growth or lead production from the previous year. But, you know, how cost effective was it? That's one question that everybody should have Um, in terms of, you know, you know, what was our cost per issue lead to use that metric again? You know, did it triple, quadruple in terms of lead costs? And then the other factor is the growth. You have to do it in a way that you can keep pace with it in terms of your personnel. And oftentimes I see these companies that have 30, 40, 50% growth and everybody's excited. Never mind the fact that they didn't make any money this year, right. but they grew the business. And and the, the personnel growth I'm talking about is tied to uh, extra installers, more production managers, you know, doubling the size of the sales force, extra sales management, additional admins. I mean, all that comes into play. And if you drop any balls and compromise that customer experience, then then you're going to be set back on your heels. You know, so that's that's what doesn't oftentimes get talked talk about. Well, and that's that enough. Well, and that's where all the fundamentals come in. That's where the math comes in, and that's where the understanding of how all of the math works in this business, and ultimately, like you, being focused on the bottom line and making sure that you've got the fuel to be able to do all this stuff. So you're not going into debt, credit cards, credit lines, owing your suppliers a bunch of money and you know all the other nightmare scenarios we as business owners can get ourselves. Yeah, well stated, Brian. I didn't touch on that, but uh, that is so true. I mean, it's one thing as a business owner, anybody as an owner of a business knows that, you know, they're, they're gambling. You got to roll the dice on, on some things. But the one thing that just scares the bejesus out of me is being in debt. Yeah. I don't use credit lines at all. I don't know anybody, anything. And, you know, it's just a scary proposition is to be, you know, leveraged that way. I mean, and I think you even have it in your book about how I learned uh, it. Oh, I learned the humanity, hard right? Yeah. But I learned yeah, that lesson well, the hard way, Mark. Yeah, I wish I I wish I'd met you 15 years ago because you wouldn't have let me do. If I had you as a mentor 15 years ago, oh my God, the stuff I would have done different. <laughs> you would have never let me borrow a penny. Um, <laughs> Thank you for I was those kind with, words. But... I you know I was talking with somebody the other day and they were saying that you know young guy starting off in business, great attitude, you know, really good. He's going to do well and. He was, he was asking me my advice about getting a business plan and going to the bank and borrowing money. And I said, absolutely not. Here's your business plan. You're going to sell five jobs uh, this month at this margin. Put the money away. You're going to use that money to, to, you know, to buy your next set of leads so you can sell another five jobs next month. And then you're going to you know, put some of that money away so you could bring on a salesperson. You know, I mean, blah, 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 blah. But it's like, you ain't going to the bank. You ain't leaning on credit cards. You're going to sell at the right price. And then you're going to use that money as the fuel to grow your business. And so. That's right. And to add to that, 
is when you're starting a business from scratch, for anybody listening who is not a business owner, but they're considering making that, that step, my advice would be every bit of your focus is on 100% on making a lead and then selling that lead. And then whatever money you make from it, you reinvest it in making the next lead right. and then selling that lead. Right. And, you know, when I've seen what I've done in 2007 with a tough economy, I mean, that's all we were focusing on. And I saw some, some other peers, and I won't be specific, but companies that were starting their own business around in and around the same time I was in 2007. And they were taking monies wherever they got it from, their investment perhaps, or from others. And or the personal investments is what I mean to say. And they were taking this money and they were getting their F-150 pickup trucks wrapped with yeah. their company logo and spending all kind of money on different things, nice offices and stuff. And we basically just worked out of a little, a little uh, 1800, I don't think it was even that 1500 square foot office space in a strip mall somewhere. You know, we paid our bills, but all of our focus was strictly on just making a lead. We didn't have a CRM system. It was just a fancy Excel spreadsheet. We picked up the phone and we made some calls yeah. you know, from home show leads. So, Love it. But, you know, humble beginnings. But that's, that's where the focus is. And, hey, you know, not a whole lot has changed since then after all these years. Still, every day I walk through the doors, my focus is on, you know, lead production yeah. and what we do with those leads. Well, Mark, I, I thank you for taking the time and coming here and talking with us and sharing with us some of the lessons that you've learned being in the home improvement business. How you, I, I, hopefully it's apparent now from everybody why he's a legend. I keep bringing that up. I'm sorry. I love doing that with you guys. You guys deserve it. You know, on the one hand, yeah, you know, on the one hand, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of funny on the one hand, but on the other hand, man, you guys, all of you guys, you've earned it. You've worked so hard and, and, and worked so smart, really built up cool companies. And hopefully by sharing your story and by sharing how you did it, hopefully we can help a few of the listeners maybe not make some of the same mistakes that we made and maybe hopefully help them look at their business in a different way, get to the point where the business helps create wealth in terms of, you know, money and time and relationships and purpose. And let's see. But again, I appreciate you, Mark. Thank you so much for, for being here. And, you know, for everybody listening, this is Brian Kaskovalsian with G4 Marketing Group. It's another episode of the Wealthy Contractor Podcast. And until next time. All right, so that's it for today's episode of the Wealthy Contractor Podcast. Let me ask you, did it help you look at your business in a new way? Did it spark an idea or ideas you hadn't thought of before? Do you have a list of action items that you can take and implement into your business or your life today? I really hope so. Now, before you go, make sure you subscribe to the Wealthy Contractor Podcast so you get access to the latest episodes as soon as they're available. We're always striving to provide you with great content so you don't want to miss what's coming up. And a favor, I'd really appreciate it if you'd go to iTunes and post a review of this podcast. Let us know how we're doing. 
The Wealthy Contractor Podcast is brought to you by G4 Marketing Group, where we help contractors of all kinds create customers, keep customers, and multiply their customers and profits. If you're interested in reaching new levels of success for your company, visit www.gfourmarketing.com or just call us at 305-856-8788 to schedule your free, no-obligation, wealthy contractor strategy session. Now, during this strategy session, we're going to look at eight key performance factors in your business and we're going to help you uncover opportunities for growth, for leads, for sales, and for profit. And finally, we started the Wealthy Contractor as a resource to help you, the home improvement entrepreneur, regardless of where you are on the wealthy scale, get where you want to go. We want to provide you with the motivation, the confidence, the resources, and the tools so you too can live the life of the wealthy contractor. Now, the wealthy contractor is a place where it's okay for you to want it all. In fact, it's not only okay, it's encouraged. So until next time, this is Brian Kaskovalsian with G4 Marketing Group.